I thought I might start by saying a little bit about Caligula, who was, of course, uh, a Roman emperor in the early period, part, if you like, of the Julian dynasty, and he reigned in Rome from 37 to 41 AD. Um, by all accounts, the reign begins reasonably well, but soon slides into arbitrary tyranny. A contemporary commentator described him as insane, utterly self-absorbed, and with an uncontrollable temper. Others record a tyrant who killed on whim and who indulged in much too, spending, much too much spending and much too much sex. Um, it's said once that uh, some set of games in Rome, when he was presiding, that he ordered his guards to throw an entire section of the audience into the arena during the intermission to be eaten by the wild animals, simply because there weren't enough criminals being to be prosecuted and he was bored. Um, I should tell you that Detlef Glanitz Caligula is not a historical opera. His Roman Emperor comes from a French source, a play by Albert Camus, which was begun in 1938 by Camus and published in 1944, and given its first performance in France in 1945. In Camus, and so in Glanet's version of the ancient history, Caligula comes to realise that death has no meaning and that there is only death after the demise of his beloved sister Drusilla. So he decides an emperor can do whatever he wishes. Absolute and arbitrary power is not, therefore, subject to any form of morality. Camus was writing about Hitler, about Stalin and other dictators within the European arena in the late 30s into the 40s. Glanert has said that for him, Caligula is also Pol Pot and Colonel Gaddafi and anybody who crosses that extraordinary line in tyranny to a point where morality ceases to be anything meaningful. So, in the opera, Caligula not only subverts the Roman state for his own ends, outwits and humiliates the patricians, but he even compels his wife, Sisonia, to agree to be murdered by him to prove her love for him. Longing for the moon, he decides that he is divine, becoming the goddess Venus. And so, in the second half of the opera, Atlantis Rome almost literally becomes a place of bread and circuses. We're going to be joined later this evening by John Berry, the artistic director of English National Opera, who's going to talk about how this opera fits into his vision of what the company is doing and what it should be doing. We're also joined later by Richard Morrison, who's covering the role of Caligula in this new production here at the Coliseum, and by Ashok Gupta, who's on the music staff of English National Opera, and they'll be exploring the role of Caligula and some of the music in the piece. But we're joined first by Nicholas Sperling, who is the production manager for this production of Caligula. So will you please welcome Nicholas Sperling. And I should add that behind us on the screen, you can see images taken from the production. But much more exciting, what we have here is the model for the production. Um, Nicholas, here you are as production manager. Um, what do you actually do with a production like Caligula? Um, the production manager's role in, uh, at English National Opera is really to help um, make the designer's wishes and ideals come to life and bringing the vision of any production, whether it be Caligula or anything else, into reality and making it much bigger than the model is, putting it on stage and having it ready um, for our first rehearsal. And at what stage do you become involved? Um, production managers are normally involved quite early because we like to be on top of the very early stages of what a designer is thinking of bringing into the theatre. 
Um, we do not, I'm not only concerned about what Caligula is going to look like, but also how Caligula will actually physically fit on our stage with two other operas in the wings. And that's very, very important here at Eno. Had you, had you seen Caligula, or did you know the work before you were asked to, to, to take it on? Honestly, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I won't pretend. Um, but very quickly, um, learnt about the piece, uh, learnt about <clears throat> the opera, um, what, what I thought were important things, and then obviously you get told by the creative team what their vision is, um, which angle they're going to approach it with, and then that's how you go with it. I can't resist asking you with this model here. What was your first reaction when tonight's designer, Benedict, uh, uh, when Ralph Myers actually showed the model? Um, when, when the lid went up on this, there was utter silence. Uh, <laughs> uh, my initial reaction was, wow, it's big. It's really, really big. Um, I think you can appreciate it looking at the model, just at how it fills the actual model box. Um, and tonight, sitting in the audience, you will also see how very massive this is. And on our very big stage at the Coliseum, which we are very lucky to have, this fills every corner. Which we might also remind ourselves, I think I'm right in saying, the Coliseum has the largest opening of any theatre in London, doesn't that it? That is correct, yes. So this is the largest set. Yes, it is. Um, we, the, the only thing that we don't have is any offstage area, or not enough, really. Once you'd, the, the, the lid had been taken off the model and the silence had broken in, perhaps at least into conversation, did Ralph Myers and indeed the, the director from Australia, Benedict Andrews, explain what the idea behind their design was? Yes, absolutely. And that's a very important moment for the creative team to bring across their idea um, to the company, but also to everybody behind the scenes, because it's very important to get the production manager, the props buyer, um, the, the, the wigs and makeup, and the costume um, people behind you and behind the vision. And this was a very poignant um, moment where Benedict, in, in his fantastic eagerness and, and passion, um, explained to us where he's coming from in this. And very quickly, within five to ten minutes, it was very clear why Ralph and Benedict decided to set this opera in basically a coliseum, a, an, an, another, a mirror image of the area that we are sitting in. Um, and with all the historical facts that uh, Benedict brought in um, and explaining of what is a stadium, what does a stadium mean to him, what, is, what does stadium mean to us as a society in modern times and how that reflects of where it's come from, from the Roman um, Colosseum to what we are going to be experiencing very soon in London, the Olympics. And what happens in that stadium and if I may just, just, just carry on on that thought, it's what Benedict was saying that the stadium has become um, the, the modern equivalent of an arena where competing nations compete in a safe environment. And it's, it's that very notion of that um, stadiums are maybe safe environments that we are trying to break. Particularly in um, the opera tonight, you'll find a lot of bloodshed and murder and, and betrayal within a stadium. And if we just look at very recent history, Hurricane Katrina and the devastation um, in America at the time, and the people fled to an area that they thought was safe, being the sports arena. That's where people normally felt safe. And just look at what happened, how dreadful people 
ended up there um, in, in absolutely dire circumstances, and the safe environment of the arena literally betrayed them, and it does so on stage. And with a longer memory, we might remember that it was the Sportpalast in Berlin, where Hitler chose often to make major uh, terrifying speeches about what he intended to do. Um, and in terms of, say, Chile, it was, of course, where Absolutely the IND terrible. regime was yes. finally dealt with by the Pinochet yes. uh, government. So these in are the places of violence. Exactly. And, and I think that, that was everybody suddenly became really very aware of, of what are we going to be working on. And it's a very poignant opera and, and poignant piece. Uh, to have been a part of. It's also a place, as you rightly said, a, a sports stadium of entertainment, and that's one of the, uh, the elements that I suppose is the inheritance of the notion of the Roman Colosseum. Uh, this becomes also a place of entertainment in the second half of the evening, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it does. Quite gaudy, uh, really, and quite Showbiz with a Z. <laughs> um, exactly, and I think it was the first time um, very many, many of my colleagues uh, backstage were very happy to be able to see sort of silver slash curtain being used in an opera house again, and that had been too many years since that had actually happened. Not to forget four chorus girls who look especially like the Tiller girls with those <laughs> very long memories. Okay, once you've seen the, the, the model, once the ideas that, that drive the set and the production have been discussed, how do you set about realising it? Um, obviously, a very, very important part of my work is to make sure that um, we can find somebody who can build this um, to the specifications and requirements that are needed from the artistic side, but also from my side in terms of how many people are we intending to get on there, how it needs to be safe, it needs to be able to carry um, the full chorus and principles safely on any part of the, uh, the stadium. And I go about to find a workshop who can do that within budget. That's very, very important. Um, and then we start drawing it up, technical drawings, we start scaling it up, and then you start building. And we try and build, obviously, as soon as possible. Uh, we try to get ahead of ourselves. Um, and very importantly, Benedict also made it clear at the first presentation of this, and I understood immediately why he asked for the set to be in rehearsal. Um, and on such a big set, that is almost never possible. Um, and in this case, we had about one third of the set in rehearsal. So it was the actual physical set to allow all the singers, the cast, the full cast, and some of the crew to get used to being on this quite precarious And that's a rarity. Set. That doesn't often happen. Um, it is. Um, what we normally do, th this, this is quite a different um, set for an opera. You'd normally have something with a big raked floor um, and a few set pieces behind it. Um, and putting down just a, a floor at an angle is relatively easy. Something like this at this size, um, and talking about challenges in a moment, um, this weight is very, very difficult to put into our rehearsal studio. What were, what were the challenges as you started to build it? Yes, um, the, the challenges I'd mentioned earlier, it's very well, big challenge to make this set in its enormity work around having Madame Butterfly um, and the Flying Dutchman in the wings <laughs> where nobody can see them. Um, because this really takes up all the space. Um, what we also have to take into consideration is that uh, we will do a morning rehearsal that starts at 10.30 in the morning, finishes at 1.30 in the afternoon. At 7.30 that night, there will be a performance of another opera on stage. So at 1.30, we have about 30 people that come straight onto stage, have to take this apart in such a way that we can do a little sort of dance with 
in our, our case, Madam Butterfly and Dutchman, to then bring the one onto stage while this is going upstage and storing that for, for the evening's performance so that this, again, is not visible during the other performances. Does that mean that the set has a kind of dress rehearsal of its own? Um, if only. <laughs> um, that, that is just, that, that's where preparation comes into play. Um, I need to make absolutely sure that everybody's briefed on the staff, that we know exactly how we are going to break this set up and store it in its storage position. Um, this created a big challenge for us, this set, because it's so large, we couldn't break it up into small enough pieces to just put it against the wall. And we ended up, believe it or not, two-thirds of the set flies for storage. Um, and this whole set basically flies above itself, um, and that's a total of eight tonnes of weight that we have to lift. So up above Butterfly or Dutchman, eight tonnes of stadium? Yes. Gosh. Yes, and, and for, for us, for the Coliseum, that was, um, I believe, the heaviest piece of set that we have um, flown for storage ever. And, and that's an unusual solution? It's, it's becoming, unfortunately, it's becoming a more, a more and more used solution. But in this case, we did not have many options at all. Nicholas Spelling, thank you very much. My indeed. pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be joined now uh, by Richard Morrison, who covers the role of Caligula in this new production of Caligula here at the Coliseum, and by Ashok Gupta, who's on the music staff of English National Opera. Will you please welcome Richard Morrison and Ashok Gupta. Um, you're going, I think, to play two pieces for us, and we're going to talk in between. But yes. you're going to start, I think, with something from the very beginning of the opera. Yes, we thought we'd start with the, um, the very first scene in the opera. So it's the introduction, Caligula's introduction. Um, uh, the first time you see him, and this is after he's returned from his uh, self-imposed exile. He's three days away, and the death of his sister Drusilla has happened. And, of course, it's during this this uh, event, that was the consequence of this event that leads to the shift within him and leads to the, the brutality of his uh, subsequent regime. So this is the moment in a sense where, where we, we should hear the change. Yes, it's very ominous. It's immediately very ominous and reflects the events that are about to, to happen. And Glanert uh, made it very clear. Uh, in fact, just before this sequence we're going to sing, just a few bars before the, the, the opera begins, with uh, a huge uh, anguished uh, scream from Caligula. So that, that's uh, the general uh, theme. Okay, thank you. Here we go. like love is 
birds always panic. No one saw you. All is still. Nothing here. Only death. No bird song. No wind. Nothing but the moon that shone upon you. She has dried your wet clothes and kept you. I want to come to that, that, that final phrase in a moment when, 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 when we talk Ashok. But, but first, the issue, it seems to me, that, that, that presumably you have to think about if you're going to sing Caligula, is what is madness and is he actually mad? Absolutely. I, I, he's a dictator whose, uh, whose tyranny is an extreme abuse of the freedom conferred by absolute power. The question of insanity uh, is an intriguing one because uh, you, you assume or you, you, you try to attribute to someone's behavior some kind of reason. But uh, I don't think he's mad. I think it's about uh, someone who his morality becomes utterly warped selfishly mm -hmm. and, and yeah. And, and if we simply describe him as mad, we let ourselves off the hook, don't yes, we? Yes, we do. We don't have to confront what yes. the issues really are about the abuse of power. Of course, and I mean, the thing is, he, he, his, the brutality and the horror of his tyranny is that he um, creates for himself a, a, a logic, a warped logic that, he, that justifies his behavior and justifies his vision. And he tries to, imp he imposes that on on his environment and the people around about him and, and the people he rules over. So it's very, very dark. And of course, we mentioned, you mentioned Hitler and Mussolini and uh, Stalin, and that's, that's the thing about these people, these men. What he also has, and it's hinted at in that final phrase about the moon, and it will become abundantly clear in the second half of the opera in that extraordinary duet mm. for Sisonia and Caligula just mm. before she dies, mm -hmm. is that there's a sort of beauty in his heart and soul too. Well, this is not a man who's just dark and vile and, and aggressive. No. Well, this is just, it's disturbing because you wonder, you would think perhaps that would engender some kind of sympathy, but it really doesn't. And the way that I think of it is, imagine you met Hitler and imagine who's a great art and music lover. Perhaps he would show you around his art collection, his beauty, and he would 
talk about the beautiful paintings and the beauty of the paintings and uh, maybe he would play some music and talk about the great deep feelings he would have and you might share these thoughts and you might be impressed by his passion and moved by the beauty of the way that he perceives these things and you might share that but then he'll go into another room pick up the phone and order the execution of a hundred thousand people and the thing is that's disturbing not beca because you share something you share there is one aspect He's a human being, he's not insane, you know, he's someone who you can identify with on one level and yet he'll commit some utterly horrific atrocity. And that's a very uncomfortable and um, I would say that's one of the disturbing things about, uh, about Caligula. In terms of, of, of the singer who takes the role, this is something of an Everest. I mean, you're scarcely ever off stage. No, it's very demanding uh, um, for many reasons. Not just the size of the role, but there are many large roles. This is a contemporary piece, and Glanert writes in a very specific way. And um, the question is a familiarity with sounds and melodic forms and musical patterns. And, and Glanert, this... Um, is something which is not common with other forms of writing, even with many 20th century composers, early 20th century, who I've sung. And it's a question of acquiring the physical, you have to sing the role in. So it's not even just knowing the notes, you need to sing in the shapes, the patterns of the role. Hugely demanding from that point of view, because, because in order to realize the characterization is very well written by Glanert, that you need to have assumed this phys physicality and then you can access the structures and then the meaning of the piece. Ashok, Glanert has, has famously said that the kind of, the starting point, the kind of core of this is a kind of what he's called an or chord, a kind of primal principal chord of 25 notes. Yes. And out of this, he's developed the whole music. Can you give us some sense of, of what this sound world he's created for Caligula is? Yes. What, what seems distinctive to you? I'm so glad you didn't ask me to play the chord. I don't <laughs> well, even, even um, you, with, with, between the two of you, haven't got enough fingers, no, have you? I'd have to one more. Yes, with my nose and, and, and <laughs> lots of things. Um, well, the sound world he creates, I think it's actually quite assorted. It's, it's an assortment of different sound worlds um, to create a sort of sound universe, as it were, and, and suit the, uh, to suit the, the drama and the characters that are on stage. Um, I think he successfully attains uh, a huge variety of, of colours, from an extraordinary variety of colours from the orchestra. Um, and from what I can pick up from playing in the orchestra... Uh, they all have their moment to shine. They all are quite virtuosically at times, uh, with some quite technically demanding passages. Um, the chord is significant in a number of ways, but I, I did, I, it perplexed me for a while, and I did ask Detlev about it, and he said one of the significances of the chord is that when Caligula goes on about in this dream fantasy world and, and the moon and things like that, the chord is actually turned on its head uh, and uh, so you've got this sort of reality, you know, warped and turned upside down, which I thought was quite ingenious in a way. Um, so there we go. In, in the middle of the orchestra, there's a kind of hole if you're waiting for what you think are an orchestral sound from the pit history. There are no violas, yes. no horns. Yes. It's as if there was sort of the top, but mostly at the bottom. Yes. 
Um, I won't make any viola jokes. Uh, I, I, I don't play the viola. You didn't or know the, the, the horns were actually viola players. <laughs> oh, okay. right. In that case, we should move on. So jokes about uh, chips. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I don't play the, the, the horn or the viola, but uh, when I think of them, I imagine a sort of warmth, a, a resonant warmth in the, in, in the middle of the orchestral tessitura. And the absence of that means there's quite a polarised orchestral texture going on. You've got the extremes. You've got the high, very high and you've got the very low. And so there's this, and, and, and very little middle. And when the middle is playing, uh, it's usually a, a, a naturally low instrument straining to play something high, or a, a, a high instrument belching out something low, and it creates quite an uneasy, unsettled sound. It also makes for a sort of sharp-edged and uh, abrasive quality, you know, when, which suits Caligula's character most of the time. And when he's going on about the moon, um, it creates a sort of ethereal glassy uh, hollowness and uh, I mean uh, Glanert has, has said that he's got a sort of form of synesthesia and I think that's quite evident in the, in the sort of almost material of the orchestra that uh, There's that also pre-recorded sound isn't there? There's, there's body sounds Yes, I'm very proud to say I, I um, operate the um, screams and the heartbeats in this piece that are the sounds <laughs> from a uh, from a little synthesizer in the in the pit, and uh, they're intricately composed into the score. Um, uh, as I say, there are harrowing screams, there's heavy breathing, uh, there are heartbeats that vary in speed, uh, depending on the mood of the of the of the uh, music musical passage and the speed of the the music and uh, it's all very unnerving and disconcerting so uh, uh, it's, it's integral to the to the music and the drama what are you two going to do for us next what's the next piece you're going to play for us well sing? we the, we talk about the moon and the, the fa fantasy and the beauty the beautiful music and, and this is a sequence whenever the moon is discussed yeah. We, ought, we ought to explain to the audience, just to make sense, that the moon becomes the one object above all that Caligula wants. He sends his slave off, uh, Helicon, to try and get the moon for him, an impossible task. It becomes a single-minded obsession, and in the production he's constantly got a version of the moon, a mirror, of course, in which he sees himself. That's right, and uh, this is from Act 3, and it's a scene with Helicon, his slave, and he's uh, asking him about the task he's entrusted him with how he's getting on and then he starts to reflect uh, on the moon and it's one of those more it's one of the beautiful uh, melodic uh, sequences in um, in the piece uh, we should start two bars before 40 <laughs> Oh. 
my bed and kissed me and flooded me with heavenly silver light. And you recognise the, that, that theme and the patterns in the theme come back throughout the opera. Haunting by the end and, ch and yeah, chilling too, absolutely. I think. Absolutely, and they the, the, uh, occur with horrible events right. as well. Shh, no more. <laughs> Can we, a warm welcome, an applause, thank you, for Richard Morrison, Ashok, thank you both very much indeed. Detlef Dannert finished work on Caligula in 2006. Its first performance was in Frankfurt in July of that year. And one critic who was there at the first performance called it perhaps the finest German opera of the 21st century. This is the second contemporary German opera that English National Opera has staged in the past two months. There was Wolfgang Riem's chilling Jakob Lenz at the Hampstead Theatre in the spring. And before that, the first staging in the United Kingdom of John Adams' The Death of Klinghoffer. And back last autumn, English National Opera opened their season with Mishlav Weinberg's The Passenger. The Holocaust, the struggle between the Israelis and the Palestinians, schizophrenia, and the proof that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Anyone who thinks that a trip to the Opera House ought to be like slipping into a warm bath will, I think, have found the Colosseum a great deal more bracing this season and in previous seasons too. And certainly, well, our next guest, John Berry, has been the artistic director here. Would you please welcome John Berry? John, how would you describe, this is the big question, how would you describe what you really wanted to do as artistic director here at the Coliseum? Well, that's a big question. You did warn me you were going to, you were going to ask that. I should have thought about it. Well, I think, um, you know, clearly it's about entertainment. You want people to come and have a good time and feel that they've spent their money in the right way and they're doing something stimulating um, in the arts and in the theatre. But I, I think... You know, I see opera and the wider arts much more than simply entertainment. I think whether it's poetry or visual arts or film or opera, classical music, I think it, it really is should stimulate the senses and people should hopefully go away thinking about themselves and the world we all live in in, in a deeper and more meaningful Ways. So I think, you know, for me, it's a combination, of course, of entertainment, people feeling they're, they're in for a really stimulating theatrical music time, but also it's about programming work, not necessarily work that people might expect, mm. but it's about the surprising and the um, unexpected. And I think attached to that, of course, is thinking about the opera as a wider art form, mm. And whether it's Terry Gilliam or Improbable or Philip Glass or John Adams or Deborah Warner, Fiona Shaw, it's about working with a really broad range of artists and, and you know, trying to make the, the building and, and the art form feel like a real melting pot. 
we so often, as we sit up here, these beautiful performance talks, hear the sirens of the police cars and the ambulances going by, which always, for me, as I hear them, doesn't actually irritate, but reminds me about something that I think you've probably tried to do, which is to remind us that what happens in the building cannot be insulated from what happens outside. That in the end, that, that the issues, political, social, economic, cultural, are as much on the stage as they are on the street and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's maybe some criticism that some of this work is too dark and that maybe it's too dark too much of the time. Um, I don't have a, a one-man, two-governors um, opera. Well, you have a Mikado. A Mikado, but I don't have many of those um, up my sleeve. And, you know, and obviously an artistic programme is a reflection of, of, of what I'm interested in and some sort of personal interest. But it, it's wider than that. You know, I do think the arts is, um, and I think in particular opera. I mean, for me, opera, it's on so many levels. It's so stimulating, it's so powerful. When theatre and music and design can really come together, it feels, for me, like the most powerful art form of all to really express these big subjects. And I think pieces like Dr. Atomic, Death of Klinghoffer, The Passenger, in a sense, opera is the strongest art form, in my view, to express these big modern subjects. Is that because it's always had grand ambitions within the artistic family? Well, I think it's because it's on so many level, levels. I mean, if you take Caligula, you know, you have this, this rather, this huge almost insulation installation mm. on the stage but glamour glanet theatrically then all of a sudden brings it down to this tiny theatrical moment and the way benedict directs with such amazing focus then it becomes about a personal relationship i mean i think caligula it's about the relationship between caligula and his wife yeah. this obsessive relationship that a, a, an out-of-control individual has with his spouse. And we've we, you know, seen this in, in Syria and all over the world. I mean, for me, I only really discovered that once I started seeing the whole opera running all together. But I think the opera is about that. And again, that's intimate and it's very powerful to have the orchestra purring away underneath that relationship. You know, in the theatre, you don't have that. It can be very powerful experience. But for me, that combination of music and theatre is what makes opera so powerful and so engaging. I mean, it is a sense with her, with Cezonia Caligula's wife, what is so chilling by the end of the evening is that she has willingly, for love, surrendered any moral sense she might have. Yeah. And that's... But also, in a sense, opera does something that no other form theatre, it seems to me, does. And we might choose another example from this production. Yeah. It, it manages to both be the huge big moment, mm. the, the wider picture, but also it has this capacity for, in cinema terms, close-up. There's a moment yeah. in the banquet scene where Sisonia, having watched the terrible things that happen, just flicks a crumb off her knee. Yeah. And that tells you everything you need to know. Right? Well, uh, I mean, that's, you know, that's the difference between a very good director and an absolutely brilliant director and you know this guy Benedict Andrews he's right up there with the Aldens and Richard Jones and mm. and you know you don't get that all of the time mm. I mean we strive for that detail mm. but you know the fact is there's a limited amount of really world-class talent around mm. and when it's that good you recognize that 
and there's a lot of other things that can be very good and very powerful, but they don't have the sort of brilliance of Benedict Andrews, who's arguably one of the most exciting, you know, young theatre directors around. But it's been it's been immensely exciting that you've decided as artistic director to bring people into direct opera who come from the theatre but not from opera, and that you've stayed with them. I mean, I'm thinking of Fiona Shaw, for example, who begins um, with a small piece uh, in the Young Vic. Um, uh, Elegy for Young Lovers, and then uh, has um, or has a piece on the stage here first, then Elegy for Young Lovers, and then you know comes back to do a, to mm. a figure. Uh, it must require courage to stay well, with people. Well, the, the thing is with theatre directors, I mean, it is harder for them um, because opera is complex and it's very very hard to put on. It, it's it's really is like a car crash coming at you from every <laughs> angle. But I think Fiona Shaw, I think Terry Gilliam. Daniel Kramer did a Punch and Judy, um, improbable theatre, did the Satyagraha, and it was since absolutely wonderful, naturals to the art form. You know, there have been a lot of directors from theatre who have really come in and really made their mark. Simon McBurney, I mean, for me, that has to be one of the great um, productions of all time, really, Dog's Heart. Incredibly, he's waited 30 years to do an opera. But, you know, then there are other theatre directors and film directors who have showed their inexperience and in a way of shoulders how hard it is to do. Um, but the truth is, if you really want to expand the art form and you want to find new talent, you have to give people opportunities. And there's no, there's no crystal ball for an established opera director to hit the mark. In a way, there's no crystal ball for a theatre director to do it. It's, it's sometimes said that English opera audiences are uh, conservative, deeply conservative, uh, that they want to slip into the warm comfort of, of uh, a quick tear at the end of La Boheme. Is that your experience? Well, well, London is incredibly conservative for the arts, one of the most conservative cities in the world, apart from the visual arts, and to a certain extent, dance, but for theatre and opera and straight theatre, it's as conventional as it comes, you know, it's not the Berlin Schabuna Theatre where Benedict Andrews did his opera in, it's not like going to the Festival Autumn or going to theatre in Zurich. Um, it's very conventional, and of course in a sense that makes it harder for us, because when we're working with a lot of, you know, quite avant-garde directors, um, an audience hasn't been exposed in the straight theatre to this type of work. You can occasionally go to the Barbican Theatre to see it. But, you know, every director I work with who comes to London can't believe what a conventional city it is. Mm. Um, can you think of an obvious explanation why this should be? Because, I mean, it's, you only have to go to, let's say, a relatively small German city like Dresden, or in mm. Munich, if you want to think Munich is small, um, to see extra, extraordinarily uh, uh, interesting, innovative work. So, well, it, it, it's, it's, it's a big subject, and we've got... Um, Two minutes. <laughs> no, a few more. Three minutes. Um, look, I think, I think if you program in the arts, um, you program work that you think the audience are going to like. Yeah. Uh, that's the first mistake. Because first of all, you can't predict what the audience will like. Um, if, you, if you program work that an audience tells you they like, you never move on anyway. And then, if you program in that with that sort of approach, as soon as you do something modern and really out of the box, the audience they'll all tell you 
how much they hate it. <laughs> so it, it's, it's very, you know, it's very complicated. And I think, you know, London, you know, it's very small in its outlook for such a big city. I mean, let's face it, film has moved on. You know, the films like Munich, for example, big political films, people take that for granted when they go to the cinema that they're going to be challenged. Something about theatre in London that it's a surprise when you're challenged, not the norm. So, you know, it's about the whole culture in London and hopefully, you know, we're doing our bit to doing challenging work but hopefully you know whether it's David McVicker, Rosen Cavalier or, or Deborah Warner's wonderful sort of um, representational Eugene Yegan I mean it takes all sorts in a program but of course I'm I'm attracted naturally to a very different the smell of self you know a, a different type of program and I think there's room for a Deborah Warner on Yegan and a Deborah Warner Messiah alongside Caligula and some of the more innovative things um, we're doing. The important thing is that people, in terms of building up a brand and an identity, that people get a feeling of what they're going to expect when they come, that they know, get a feeling about what Ian O production is going to be. And I think over the last four seasons, we've developed a program where I don't think people are in in two minds at all about what it is they're coming to when they walk through the door. When Richard, jo- when we when we put on Hoffman with Richard Jones, it's going to be something fascinating and the tales of Hoffman you've never seen, really, hopefully never seen before. And you know that that's that's the importance of it. We have a little time, so we might ask if the audience would like to join us um, with questions. It's the usual roving mic. If you'd like to ask. Tom Berry, a question. Please put your hand up, catch my eye, and I will direct the roving mic. Who would like to suck? Yes, in the second row. Absolutely fascinating, thank you very much. You need, nevertheless, presumably, to stay uh, on the right side of the balance. How do you achieve that? It's very hard. It's very hard when you're doing this sort of work work when you're 1.8 million pounds down from the Arts Council. What's the alternative? do less new work, safer work, start walking backwards. Um, You have to keep moving forward. I think next season I have changed quite a lot. There are a lot of core repertoire pieces next season, but they're sort of masked by some of the choices of creative teams, Peter Convicini, Traviata, Calixto Beato, Carmen. But actually I have moved the repertoire around. I've done less new works next season more core repertoire you know it's about it's about an ongoing balance of fundraising people's perceptions and i would say the days of doing something like caligula are numbered because we we can't afford to do it anymore we simply this is a relatively poor company we have a huge international co-production profile but we, we can't keep doing work like this unless we really find a way of reaching a different audience. And that's about marketing. It's about how we communicate with our audience. Unless we learn how to do that really well, this, this sort of stuff won't happen again. Can we have another question? In the front row. It's coming, the microphone is coming. Uh, just like to go 
Um, uh, listening to the Radio 4, I can't remember which title of the program, but recently about passive, uh, the audience, theatrical audiences being passive, and therefore they're doing all this running around warehouses and old Vic tunnels to change that um, experience of, uh, of the theatrical audience. And I'm trying to think how... I know in, at the ENO you've involved a lot of um, local local singers. I can't remember the piece it was. It was where where you had a computer related piece. Yeah, two boys. Two boys. Two boys. Exactly. Yes. So my question is, uh, maybe that would um, sort of shift or develop ENO in a, in, a, in a way that would. Um, I've no idea what you're asking. Yeah, really no, I'm just thinking, I'm just wondering if you've thought of that. that thought, thought of what? The, the changing the, passive, the, the audience being passive, having more involvement. Well, well, I think on the digital front, I think the digital, whether it's marketing or digital initiatives, only really work if there's a sort of call to action and people can really get involved. Um, so we're looking at that much more in terms of digital work, how people, that, that, you know, there's some sort of offer there in return for people engaging with the mm. digital work. In terms of site-specific work, it's very expensive. And yeah. It's a great way of going out. <coughs> we did it with Punch Drunk. And um, when we took over for um, Duchess of Malfi, we took over an office block. But, you know, it's very, very expensive to do and you, you can't get a very big audience but um, you know through the digital work I think we need to find a way of how people can feel more involved in what we do. Would you like to pass the microphone over to the front of the room? It'll have to be the last one. Yes absolutely. I'm going to cheat rather it's not so much a question but just to say to you that my wife and I we've been coming here for 30 years I think we love Carmen we love Traviata but we have been stimulated by the John Adams uh, opera that you put on. Mm. The, um, the Passenger is, it sticks in mm. my mind, mm. and several others do. Mm. I just sort of want to encourage you, or say, well done. I think you mm. do a, a fantastic mm. job here at ENO, mm. which you don't get down the road at Covent Garden. Mm. That you, you, you do take the chance. Mm. I think it often works. Sometimes mm. we've mm. hated it. More times than not, we've been <coughs> surprised. Mm. Um, Keep on with the good yeah. work and not mm. don't stick just to the core repertoire. You'll lose your edge. Yeah. Well, I, I, You've I, got an edge I hate the it. feedback that's in the middle. I hate three-star reviews in papers. <laughs> it's, it's sort of they, they just waste it. You know, either give it four or five stars yeah. or give it one or two yeah. stars. Yeah. I mean, we we, we saw, know, we saw um, the, the Times, uh, Richard Morrison, yeah. uh, write up on yeah. this. But at least he gave, thought, but at least he gave it a terrible review and had a view on it. That's fine yeah. because then yeah. the Evening Standard said it was an amazing triumph. And Hugh Canning said it was amazing. What, 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 I, what I really hate in the theatre is that if people just react indifferently and this sort of, this sort of um, you mentioned warm bath um, sort of scenario. And I think, you know, the arts, and especially here, should be about really quite extreme views and sometimes extreme work. I've got to go. I know. Yeah, yeah. Can we say thank you to you for being here? Very much thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Ladies and gentlemen, other thank you. Thank you to all of you for being here this evening. Um, thank you to our guests, uh, Richard Morrison, Ashok Gupta, and Nicholas Sperling, uh, and the model. And if you look under your bottoms, you may find, if you haven't already looked, you'll find the details of next season's pre-performance talks. Same place next time. Um, not, I think, we've got all the dates yet, but at least you'll find more details of what will happen next season. But thank you very much indeed. Enjoy this evening. Thank you.